space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. So welcome. This is the first episode of a podcast I hope to be able to do at least monthly. And for those of you who don't know me, um, I've been playing war games for almost 40 years and writing about them for over 30. In fact, my first published review was in Fire and Movement number 43 back in 1985. Uh, since then, I've written a lot about computer games uh, on various websites. Uh, computer Gaming World magazine, when that was a thing, uh, I was the wargaming columnist for a long time. Uh, I participate in another podcast about strategy games of the computer variety called Three Moves Ahead uh, that has some 340 episodes. We do sometimes talk about board games there. And I also have a blog called wargamespace.com where I'm even doing wargame videos. So why this? Well, two reasons really. Uh, The first is that I was getting a bit frustrated that I kept missing games that I wanted to order because I wasn't diligent enough about following wargame news. So I decided to make a New Year's resolution, uh, to the extent that I do that kind of thing, to do a better job of that, kind of in a systematic way, you know, read all the websites, take notes, keep a release diary of sorts, etc. And then I figured, well, if I'm going to do that, um, I might as well share it. Um, So okay, fine, but then why share it in a podcast? Well, the reason for a podcast is that I've been doing a lot more thinking about war games analytically uh, recently than I have in the past for some reason, um, and that's what exactly got me into making war game videos. I really was um, trying to find a new outlet to sort of present these things in, the, in a way that uh, I hadn't been able to do in print, and uh, in fact, you can see these uh, videos on YouTube or on my site, wargamespace.com. Um, But making videos is incredibly time-consuming, even more so than what I originally thought. Um, I mean, at the rate I'm going, uh, it's going to take me a year and a half to finish a four-video series about Dien Bien Phu. But that doesn't stop me from having ideas. Uh, It just means there's an idea bottleneck. So I thought that a podcast might let me, uh, you know, get some of those ideas out of my brain, uh, share some of them, uh, maybe even get some feedback, and uh, heck, the good ones uh, I might turn into some videos later. Okay, so here's my plan. Um, I'm going to do a monthly podcast of war game news, people, and views. Okay, those three things. And I'm going to do it monthly. I'd like to do it more often. Maybe I can, but uh, I can't commit to anything more than that. Um, So I'll start with a roundup of everything I found that's of interest to me. Um, And that's just going to be about war games. Uh, So while I do enjoy non-war themed games, um, like Euros or whatever you want to call those other games... um, there are plenty of places to hear about that stuff. You don't need another one here. So um, I want a place where the only topic is war games. Okay, so that'll be the news part. Uh, the second part will be a short, uh, and I mean that, 
uh, chat or dialogue with someone about war games. Not necessarily a designer or anyone famous or anything like that. Just someone to talk briefly about something wargaming. Uh, and that'll be the people part. And then, for the last part of the podcast, I'm going to just talk about whatever. A game I played, something interesting I read that relates to some game, or the way a game portrays a particular event, uh, my thoughts on some theme or set of mechanics, or discussion of some particular game's map art, I don't know, whatever. Totally open topic. You'll never know what I'm going to go on about. Now, the key, though, is that I'm going to try to keep this to 30 minutes. Um, you know, that's not a hard limit. I'm not going to be, you know, religious about that, but I do value organization and conciseness uh, and clarity. And I'm not going to force everything into half an hour, but I'd really like to keep the show short so that, you know, people can get whatever they want out of it. You know, um, you can get your news if you just want to hear that. If you there's somebody that I'm talking to that you want to listen to, you can hear the news in the interview. And then if you want to hear my ideas, then you can listen to the whole thing. But um, you can switch off anytime you want. And, you know, you're never going to have to try and filter through uh, a 90-minute or 120-minute podcast here um, just to find something you're interested in. And speaking of interested in, um, that's really going to be my criterion for including stuff in the show. Um, I can't cover everything, so for me to mention it, uh, it'll have to be about wargaming in the way that I define wargaming. So um, I really should say mostly historical wargaming. Um, will there never be any science fiction or fantasy? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's exceptions to everything. Um, but the main criterion is that it interests me. Uh, and hopefully that means uh, most of it or part of it, hopefully, will interest you too. So with that, let's move on to the news. I went through Kickstarter to see if I could find any currently active Kickstarters for war games and the only thing that even comes close is something called Pub Battles, colon, Brandywine, dash, Washington's Last Surprise, about the American Revolutionary War Battle of Brandywine Creek. It looks like an interesting concept, uh, sort of a travel game, with a sturdy, stain-resistant playing mat that you can take to the pub. I guess that's why it's called Pub Battles. And units that resemble the very attractive wooden blocks in Bowen Simmons games, like Napoleon's Triumph and Napoleon at Marengo, that kind of aesthetic. It looks like combat is dice-based, although I can't find a full set of rules anywhere. Uh, the Kickstarter video is very short on info, and the campaign text is also pretty vague about how the game works exactly. There's only a partial rule set on there that I could find. Um, it also seems that the game doesn't look like it's very substantial, but the going price on it for uh, one copy on Kickstarter is $97. And it only has a $2,000 goal, so actually... Um, it's reached its goal even though it only has 35 backers. So I don't know. It's from Command Post Games, those same people that did the Supremacy 2020 Kickstarter, I think it was last year. Um, as of February 13th, the campaign had two weeks to run. But like I said, it's already met its goal, and um, that was only $2,000. So uh, go to Kickstarter and search for Brandywine if you want to check that out. So GMT Games, they just added some titles to their P500 list, including Pendragon, which is a coin game about Roman Britain by Marc-Guillaume Reti, 
that made the P500 cut a day after it was announced that it was going on P500. I got the email one day saying, here's the P500 edition, and an email the next day saying it made the cut. So uh, congratulations, Mark. Uh, that's obviously very popular. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, GMT is also going to do a reprint of Jason Matthews and Christian Leonhardt's 1960, The Making of the President, uh, that was previously published by Z-Man Games. Uh, I have that game. It's an excellent game, and uh, I'm glad that it's being reprinted. Um, but one thing that I immediately pre-ordered is uh, by Carl Paradis, and that's called Absolute War. Uh, and it's billed as a fast-playing, manageable area movement game with cards about the campaign in Russia from 1941 to 1944. Uh, it's supposed to be more streamlined than No Retreat, uh, and Carl should know because he designed No Retreat. So, uh, and that's a fantastic game, I should say. And this is supposed to be uh, both for sort of more introductory uh, type players as well as uh, grognards. That's what it says anyway. So I'm very excited about that one, uh, and my 40 pre-order dollars are already in. So moving on to Legion War Games, uh, they are now taking payment for uh, pre-orders on two of their games, uh, the games Little Bighorn and Rosebud Creek, which are games about the Indian Wars, obviously. Um, you can get them both for $85 total, uh, or you can order them individually. Shipping for the two is about $11 in the U.S. together, I think. Um, Legion War Games has this customer pre-order system where uh, you can pre-order the game, but you don't give them any information other than just saying which game you want. You don't give them any credit cards. And then when they meet the pre-order limit, they then send you an email saying uh, it's time to pay. But you, know, you have no obligation. You just uh, can uh, make the payment or not. So that email was sent out a few days ago, uh, and they're supposed to start shipping February 17th. Um, I'm sure the pre-pub price will last longer than that, though. It usually does with Legion War games, so you have some time. Um, and they have several more games that have made the cut on pre-orders, but uh, these are the only two games for which Legion is actively taking payments. Now, there's a company called One Small Step Games. Uh, they've reprinted the old Mark McLaughlin game, uh, Holy Roman Empire. Um, that's available from them for, I think, $70. Uh, but the thing that I'm excited about is their upcoming reprint of No Trumpets, No Drums. Um, that's another Mark McLaughlin design about the Vietnam War, and that originally appeared in the Wargamer magazine number 22 way back in 1982. And I actually have that version, and uh, it's a really good game. Uh, it looks terrible, by the way, uh, but it really it plays well. Um, and it's uh, available from One Small Step, still ordered, uh, still the pre-order price is available for $44.95. Now, one small step seems to pull their pre-order pricing pretty fast when the game uh, once the game is ready to ship because they have an Al Nofi game out uh, or coming out about World War One and it hasn't shipped yet uh, but the pre-pub pricing on that one has already been withdrawn and now they're charging full price. Um, by the way, they're also doing uh, NATO nukes and Nazis too, <laughs> okay, and uh, as well as a game called Putin Strikes: The Coming Battle for Eastern Europe. So, uh, one small step games is at ossgamescart.com um, or just go to Google and search for One Small Step Games. It'll come up right away. So speaking of reprints, uh, seems like there are a lot of reprints coming. Um, Clash of Arms Games, they're reprinting Triumph of Chaos, which is a 2005 card-driven point-to-point design uh, about the Russian Civil War, and they're doing it as a deluxe edition, you know, bigger everything. Uh, this is one that I've always wanted to play, as it's one of the heavier card-driven games out there, at least it has that reputation. 
The current pre-pub price is $96 plus shipping with the regular price going to $120 at some point. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't have a publication date on that. Um, just go to Clash of Arms, uh, search for Clash of Arms games on Google. You'll find it. Now, a game that I've been watching for a while, ever since I saw it first on Consum World, is Stalingrad, Verdun on the Volga by Michael Ranella. Um, he designed the area impulse game Monty's Gamble, as well actually as a lot of other games. Um, but this new one is supposed to be an area impulse game that makes Stalingrad playable in an evening. So that sounds fun. I have no idea what the publication schedule is for this thing. There's been information out about it for a while, um, but I'm not, I have no idea how far along they are. Um, I'm very interested uh, in the game based on uh, Michael's other designs. Um, so it's coming out from Last Stand Games. Uh, they seem to be associated with Against the Odds magazine, and if you want to check it out, um, you can look it up on Consum World or go to laststandgames.com. Now, over at Victory Point Games, uh, they have a couple of Solitaire War games coming out, uh, including a second edition of Empires in America. This is a gold box second edition about the French and Indian War that's designed by Joseph Miranda, as well as Scratch One Flattop about the Battle of the Coral Sea. That one's not out yet. Um, but the solitaire game that I think everyone should know about, uh, even though it's not a war game, is called Nemo's War. Although, don't let that word war fool you. Um, it, doesn't, it wouldn't qualify as a war game, I think, by any uh, standard that people would uh, normally recognize. Um, but it's designed by Chris Taylor, and it's beautifully illustrated by Ian O'Toole. And uh, at least the art that's been released uh, by Victory Point uh, just looks beautiful. Now... This is a second edition of a game that came out in 2009, and it's just a fantastically inventive version of the Voyage of the Nautilus uh, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. And the second edition uh, just finished a $240,000 Kickstarter with over 3,000 backers, and the game is now open for pre-order until March 29th. Uh, that's for $75 uh, per game. And uh, I believe that's uh, greater than the, uh, that's higher than the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter price was lower. Um, now, I can't make any judgments about how much any game is worth. Uh, you know, money's worth different, that uh, money has different value to, every, to each person. You know, you, only you know your wallet um, and how much you want to pay for a game. But all I can say is that this game, just the game itself, is tremendous. And I'm ordinarily not a big fan of Solitaire games. So, oh, and yes, I, I was in on the Kickstarter, so I guess... I've already paid. Now, over at Multiman Publishing, um, the big deal for me is that they're going to do an advanced squad leader module that is set in Korea. Well, that's right. Um, I think that's the first non-World War II um, ASL module they've done. Um, it's going to be called Forgotten War. It's a $96 pre-order, and um, I think I got the first announcement about it last month, and I just saw that it has already met its pre-order goal. So uh, that's a very fast trip to the front, front of the line. Uh, very, obviously very popular. A lot of people are interested in that. Now, with these ASL modules, you never know when they're going to go away. I remember when Valor of the Guards just sort of vanished. Um, so it's good to keep an eye on them. And uh, Beyond Valor, which is the very first uh, ASL module that was um, out of print forever, is now available uh, again. And um, speaking of things that have been unavailable, um, just from uh, Multiman Publishing, is Warriors of God. And that's a game about the Hundred Years' War that is now back in stock. So all of that is from Multiman Publishing. 
So, uh, things you might not know about, uh, GMT Games Magazine, uh, or should I say former magazine, C3i, is now being published by RBM Studio. Um, that's Roger B. McGowan Studio uh, for GMT's longtime art director, although I'm, I'm, most, I'm sure most people listening to this uh, podcast know who he is. Um, Roger is now selling the magazine directly through Amazon, and they have a new issue, number 29, um, that has a complete game uh, from Mark Herman called Plan Orange. Um, about a hypothetical Pacific War in the 1930s. And uh, the first run of that uh, sold out pretty quickly um, on Amazon. But um, uh, RBM Studio did restock it, so it's back in stock at Amazon. Uh, you can just go to Amazon, search for just search for C3i or um, uh, Plan Orange. You'll find it. Um, and you could also get more information at uh, C3iOpsCenter.com. That's letter C, number three, letter I, O-P-S, Center, Dot com. And um, I'm glad to see Roger sort of taking full control of the magazine that he's always had such a strong hand in. And uh, on the book front, um, I found something really interesting called Zones of Control, Perspectives on Wargaming. Uh, that's scheduled to be published by the MIT Press in hardcover on May 6th of this year. Um, the co-editors are Pat Harrigan and Matthew Kirschenbaum. And this looks like a collection of you know, academic, analytical, and anecdotal pieces by a whole bunch of authors. And just a few of them include uh, John Prados, uh, Volker Runke, uh, Mark Herman, Ted Racer, and even my colleague Troy Goodfellow from Three Moves Ahead. Um, and it also has a foreword by James F. Dunnigan. So uh, this looks like a very interesting book. Uh, you can pre-order it through Amazon for $50. Uh, just go to Amazon and search for Zones of Control. And that's it. Um, and that doesn't seem like a lot of stuff. Uh, mostly reprints, things without a publication date. Uh, but I guess that's the winter doldrums for you. So, um, PrezCon uh, is the winter. Uh, sorry, is the weekend of February twenty seventh in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, I was hoping to go to that, but uh, turns out I'm going to have to be out of town. Uh, and it won't be out of town to Virginia. It'll be elsewhere. So um, I won't be there. But uh, if anyone uh, listening is going, then uh, have a great time. So for today's people segment, I have legendary designer Mark Herman. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Bruce. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I uh, hope you are as well on uh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, and then and the reason we're doing this now is my wife is out with my daughter, so we have a, we have a slot. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's see, you can always fit stuff in like that. Uh, that's that's how that's how gamers work. So um, I have some questions for you. Um, the first question I'd like to ask you is, of all the games you've designed, and you've designed so many of them, which game would you like to redesign? And I'm not saying that in the sense that it turned out poorly. I'm just thinking maybe a game that you designed, and you had multiple ways to go about it, and you did one thing, and maybe it turned out great, but there's another way you wanted to go about it, or something you just wish you had redone. Well, I guess the, uh, the, the interesting, interesting that you should ask me that question, because I'm in the middle of doing that right now. So uh, back in... What was it? 1990 something. Uh, I did Peloponnesian War, which was um, which had an interesting genesis in and of itself. Uh, Jim Dunnigan uh, took over S and T magazine for a short while in the 90s. I don't know how many issues he went, but it wasn't very long, maybe a year. And he asked me to do a game for him. And I, um, at the time, which will come back to something that you really want to talk about later, I uh, had just read um, uh, Thucydides uh, for the first time. I think at that point. 
Uh, yeah, I had, well, actually, I read it for the Naval War College when I was teaching that class, and so I was interested in that topic, so I therefore did this game, and it was a solitaire game, which I we can go into the mechanics of that at another point, but when I got the opportunity to redo uh, this game, I had subsequently done Churchill, right, and so the game that I really wanted to do was a more political game about the Peloponnesian War, which the original one is really a military exercise with just a little bit of politics on top. This one's going to be really a more political military game, but there will be a military part to it. Unlike Churchill, it will actually have a, uh, a light but reasonable, reasonably um, um, textured uh, military environment, but it's really a, how that works together because you couldn't be a Greek politician without being a general in that period. So they really are, there was no separation between those two concepts. And so I am getting to redo uh, Peloponnesian War as Pericles. Uh, and I'm also expanding it to be more like a sandbox because the first one was really about the second Peloponnesian War. There was actually a period of time from about 450 uh, BC to, you know, to 400 BC where, you know, Athens and Sparta and a lot of other, uh, you know, other country, uh, other countries, other city states in their orbits were banging into each other and there was numerous conflicts and it was a major war that went on earlier. That they then had a you know a thirty years truce from, uh, and then the second Peloponnesian War, which is really the the, the meat of the Thucydides uh, history, but the other ones the, the other parts in the earlier part of the book, uh, then you have the real meat of it, which is Thucydides uh, telling the, the detailed story of the second Peloponnesian War. So this game is more about the experience of Athens and Sparta through this entire half century, vice although there'll be a scenario for the second Peloponnesian War. So I think I've expanded it. It's more political military, and so that's how I'm redoing uh, the Peloponnesian War. Okay. And did that come out of any desire on your part or new, new information on your part, or is it just because you thought, oh, I can do this a different way or uh, because your experience with, with Churchill? Um, well, I don't think there's any been a whole lot of new information. <laughs> I mean, not in for you. I mean, from your perspective, like you, you, yeah. you saw some new research, research that you hadn't read before or something like that. Well, no, I think it was really more um, – looking at having done Churchill and really liking the, you know, the negotiation mechanic, which is the new part of, you know, it's a new, I don't know if anybody else has done that before, but I'm not aware of it. But anyway, that mechanic um, really said, here's another way I can now finally come back into that other topic because I had another mechanism, which I didn't have back in, in the early nineties. I see. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so the second question that I have for you is, um, you know, you are known for your, um, card-driven gameplay that you basically invented a genre. Um, of all the games you've designed, uh, you've you know done quite a bit of card-based gameplay. Is there a mechanic that you don't like, or a mechanic that you'd be, I guess, the mechanic you'd be least likely to use in a game? Um, well, it, it, there is a mechanic I don't like uh, a lot, actually. Um, so, but it's more around um, how you resolve combat in games. In other words. You know, you've heard of the bag of dice. Yes. Uh, I, I really dislike the bag of dice hmm. um, uh, way of handling combat. Now, I understand that it, you know, obviously it'll produce a district. You, know, you could do the math of any number of dice, right? So that's not hard to calculate. But I don't find that the mechanic actually reflects anything other than like you're all taking a shot at each other. You know, the probability of a hit or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um so I guess there are contexts where it would make sense, 
but it doesn't give any, it looks at, see, it says that every single activity here is an independent event, right? So in other words, it says if I got 10 guys and you've got two guys, um, you know, it's five to one odds or you want, you know, there's some balance of forces. And if I get to roll more dice than you, then I should get a better overall result. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that not always working. But the reality is, is that there is a quality of quantity but in and of itself, which is not captured by that mechanic. So I find it to be very, a very unrealistic way of handling combat, although you can argue mathematically it does the same thing. Now, when I did Empire of the Sun, I used the concept of a bag of dice, but I did it as a modifier. In other words, you, get, you have so many shots, you're rolling, and you're going to get some number of hits. You can't get less than a quarter of your hits, right? Uh, there's, a, that, there's, a, there's a floor to it. But you can, and you can't get more than your number of hits, which is, you know, what a bag of dice thing would do if you've got really horrible die roll. No, actually, real hard, horrible die roll would get nothing, right? But, you know, you, you're going to get a range of results. And I use that as a way to handle, that's how I handle a shooting, con, you know, I'm shooting at you, you're shooting back concept versus what the bag of dice, I'm shooting at you, you're shooting back at me concept. Okay, so you think that the, the fact that you can have these really uh, aberrant results is inherently in self unrealistic, even if the ultimate, uh, you know, distribution somehow works out. Yes, I do because it, it you know, it just, it just, it, there, look, there, all games have abstractions. I just don't, you know, and and I'm not saying that it's inappropriate. And and some of the most beloved games were bag of dice. People go, oh, I can't wait. I love rolling thirty dice. I mean, so people just get viscerally off of throwing a lot of dice around. So I'm not knocking it from a fun factor, just from a simulation what I'm trying to uh, do uh, direction. I just don't particularly like that mechanic. Got it. Okay. Um, and I guess the last question is uh, that you had alluded to the answer earlier. Um, what's the thing that's most likely to get you interested in a topic for game design? So I think if you, if you want to design a game, do you come up with a mechanic and think, oh, I, I have this really cool mechanic. Uh, how can I fit this into some historical situation? Or do you read a book and decide, gosh, I really want to make a game about this? Or do you hear, you know, some, uh, you know, family history, somebody talking about or friends saying, you know, I had this experience in this historical uh, time. And then you think you what 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 brings that uh, desire out in you to design a game? Well, I, well, two things. Well, one, it, it's never the case that I have a mechanic. I have a hammer and all problems with nails. So I never like there's no. I don't go out and say, I'm going to do a CDG. Uh, now, even after I, I created them, I, I, I didn't go off, you know, purposely and say, you know, I want to do a CDG, but I try to use situation where a CDG might make sense. Right. Um, but I always, for me, it always starts with history of some kind. You know, there's some historical interest, um, that is sparked. It's almost usually it's by reading a book, although, uh, I have been inspired by museum, um, uh, museums. Uh, in fact, the Churchill game was really inspired by my going into Churchill's bunker. Hmm. The museum in London uh -huh. was really the genesis of because it was when I was actually. If you ever been, to, if you have you been to this bunker? No, I have not. Okay, so uh, you know, just and for anybody else who's listening, yeah. what, what you're doing is first off, you're going way under. It's under. It's underneath a. Um, it's underneath Parliament, I think, or it's or one of the government buildings. I don't remember exactly if it's under Parliament itself, but it's under a government building. It's, you know, down some, you know, 20, 30 meters underground. So you got a lot of concrete and dirt above your head, right? So you're really deep down in this bunker. And like any kind of bunker complex, it's not, um, you know, pr uh, spaces on a premium, right? So it's right. a suite of rooms. And the main room, which is sort of like, a, imagine a very small, uh, very com uh, compact conference room, 
was this table. And literally at this table, you know, there's, this is Churchill's chair, and this is, you know, where Brooke sat. You know, that's the uh, chief of staff. You mm-hmm. know, the, Alan Brooke, yeah. Alan Brooke. You know, so everybody had their chair, and this is where they sat and actually discussed the war. And sometimes while the Germans were bombing London above them, right? You know, you know the right. bomb raining down, and they're sitting down in this thing. I'm sure you can see, like, in the movies, like, every time a bomb comes close, you can imagine some dust coming up the ceiling or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And what was really fascinating to me was the room is, you know, the four walls of the room have these ginormous maps on them. You know, the you know the whole ceiling, the floor, to the whole width of the, is a map. Uh-huh. And so one map's of the Atlantic. And, you know, it was a war game. You know, those, you could see, you know, the pins where they thought the convoys were. And this thing was updated every single hour. So there's just a entire staff of people. So this is a human database that he's running the war from. And there's a, a staff of people, uh, mostly women, whose only job it is is to get these reports and update where the pins go. Wow. So that's what they do all day long. And when he traveled... These maps went with him wherever he was. Hmm. And when Roosevelt saw these maps, he goes, hey, how come I don't have one of these? <laughs> he made one for him. because he. So this was sort of the perspective of what Roosevelt and Churchill, and I, I don't know, I'm sure Stalin had a, an equivalent of this somehow because he was really a military leader in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I saw the game, so when I saw these maps, I said, there's no game where I could be Churchill looking at the world at the, you know, the 100,000 foot level and trying to form the world, you know, or mm-hmm. Roosevelt trying to do the same thing. And so it was that inspiration was in this case a museum. And of course, I had read a number of diplomatic histories. And so the whole thing kind of fell together for a variety. You know, I, I think I, I can't I think I knew I was going to the museum and I read a book and then I saw the museum and I read another book. And, you know, so the whole thing kind of became blurred into I want to do this game. Got it. So it was, it was kind of a, a process of, immerse, of immersing yourself in the subject and that, that started with the museum. That's fascinating. I, I, I guess I'm going to have to – and that museum is open to the public, obviously. So Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and also, by the way, as a sidebar, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine um, got married. He went to um, uh, Cambridge, and uh, mm-hmm. there's the um, Churchill's um, – all of Churchill's papers, they have a Churchill Center there. Mm-hmm. And all of Churchill's papers are there because he was – very close to the curator before, you know, our bachelor party, believe it or not, was, you know, not unlike no, normal bachelor party, because we had a, a lot of wives and things in town, but unlike a normal bachelor party where you're kind of doing salacious things, right. our bachelor party was we sat in the Churchill Center and we're looking at and reading with the curator, you know, handwritten, you know, Churchill's better letters, you know, his famous speeches. Huh. So that's what I did for a friend's bachelor party. I read wow. Churchill's stuff in, 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 the, in, in his own hand. Nice. It was very cool. That's so awesome. that all happened around the same time frame. Hmm. Well, Mark, thanks so much for taking time out on uh, on Valentine's Day. Um, we should both scoot off, but uh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Bruce. Take care. Thank you. So for our first show ever, I'm going to do a top five list. My top five war games ever. Everyone loves lists. We all read listicles. Top 10 lists are great because everyone has one, so we can all compare them and then argue about it afterwards. So, this is mine. And since this is supposed to be a short podcast, we'll make this a top five. It's not meant to be anything other than a list of what I consider to be the five best board war games ever made. And it's a hard list to make because there are probably 25 or so games that if you asked me if I wanted to play one on a given day, I would say yes immediately. No questions asked. So how do you narrow that down to five? Well, it was hard, I've got to say that. 
But in the end, each of these games has something unique about it that makes it particularly attractive to me. And each of these things is distinctive enough and different from the others that I feel these five games represent the absolute best of what wargaming has to offer, at least to someone like me. And when I say wargame, I mean, well, Titan may be subtitled The Monster Slugathon Fantasy Wargame, and while it is truly one of the best games ever made, it is not a wargame. And I also want to make it clear that while I absolutely stand behind these five choices, and I'm not apologizing for any of them, I did take into consideration the type of games they were and how different they were from one another. Um, I think that within games of the same genre, and card-driven games in particular, which game is quote-unquote best has a lot to do with which period of history you like and how many players you have. For example, Hannibal, Rome vs. Carthage, is .006 points behind Virgin Queen on the Board Game Geek War Games rank list. So Hannibal is 10th, and Virgin Queen is 8th. Is Virgin Queen a better game than Hannibal? I think the question really is, how many players you got? Because if the answer is 2, then the conclusion is no. I mean, I can't imagine many people arguing that Virgin Queen plays very well with two people, um, certainly not as well as Hannibal, which is a fantastic game, by the way. And that's another reason that I'm much, much more familiar with Hannibal than Virgin Queen, since I really had three or four other players around who all wanted to play Virgin Queen. Now, on the fact that Hannibal um, has been out for 16 years more, so I got to play it a lot more. So for me, anyway, Hannibal is the, quote, better game, but it's so much a function of those factors that choosing between a bunch of games like this seemed to be kind of an exercise in nitpicking and historical preference. Um, is two-player Hannibal better than a six-player Virgin Queen? I don't know. Uh, I have, I've played way more Hannibal than Virgin Queen, uh, probably not enough Virgin Queen to make a judgment. Uh, and instead of making that judgment between, say, Unhappy King Charles and Washington's War, I'd rather choose the best from a variety of genres and judge those against each other. So let's start. Um, at number five, I'm going to go back to 1982 for a game that I think was not only way, way ahead of its time then, but in a sense still is. Uh, it's a game that I think is the best use of mechanics to capture theme ever, and I mean that. Uh, furthermore, it's the type of game that I don't necessarily like much, and that's a block game. In fact, when you compare it to the war games at the time, I'd say it's positively Euro and uh, anticipates some of the innovations that came to the U.S. in the Euro game craze 10 or more years later. I'm talking about Craig Basink's Rommel in the Desert. Now, I'm a bit of a North African nut, and I've played just about every single game on the subject, from Africa Corps to Campaign for North Africa to Panzer Armee Africa to The Legend Begins to DAK to whatever. And I have to say, when I first played Rommel in the Desert, I kind of dismissed it. You know, what is this? Blocks, roll dice to hit, can't be serious. Not a war game, sorry. Uh, it really took me learning a lot more about the desert campaign itself, I mean, historically, um, to realize just how well the sync system captured the essence of these battles and the psychological warfare that went on between the commanding generals. Um, the bluffing mechanic is absolutely fantastic and mirrors my understanding of how the desert war went. I mean, what was the dash to the wire but a tremendous bluff? And the movement system solves the problem of artificial front lines that develop in desert games because they can. Um, so all in all, this is a game I could only appreciate after playing a lot more games, uh, which is probably why I didn't like it when I was 15. So at number five, it's Rommel in the Desert. 
Now, I wasn't sure where to put the next game because I don't really see it as part of the wargaming hobby so much. Uh, to me, it's more like its own hobby in the same way that miniatures is because the people who play this game tend to play it exclusively. A lot like people who play miniatures prefer to play just miniatures. Uh, this is a game I've been playing for 35 years, owned most of what has ever been published for it, uh, yet I very rarely take it out of the game uh, box to play anymore. And I'm talking, of course, about Advanced Squad Leader. Understand, I don't play it not because I don't love it. I think that uh, instead I can borrow a great explanation from a local gaming buddy uh, who told me recently that he really only has room in his head for two games at a time. I think at that time uh, it was Churchill and Empire of the Sun. Uh, these were the two rule sets that he could keep straight and process at that point. So uh, he was telling me if we wanted to play something else together, he was going to have to move, one, uh, move on from one of those games. Uh, and it wasn't going to be Empire of the Sun, by the way. Um, but he said that for Advanced Squad Leader, that actually takes up two slots. So uh, there's a good physiological reason uh, that many people only play Advanced Squad Leader, I guess, and that's brain capacity. Uh, I think I've complete, uh, conclusively shown that right there. Um, but I know what my buddy is saying, and it's true, because I feel similarly. When I'm playing ASL, I kind of forget all the other games and just think about it. Um, and with so many great games coming out all the time, I'm not willing to put those on hold to dive back into an all-consuming system. And now back in the early 90s, that was a different story. Um, I played on Genie, uh, where there was a large community of ASLers. Uh, and I played in the Chicago face-to-face -face scene. Uh, and this was because it was a way to uh, get games for sure. Because when the hobby was still very fragmented, um, hooking up with someone who wanted to play the particular other random game that you wanted to play uh, was tough. Um, so I appreciate ASL for keeping me in wargaming when I could easily have fallen out for lack of opponents. And I still marvel at how well that game transports me to any theater of the war with all sorts of arcane rules. And i got to say, that's part of the fun of it that big, all-encompassing system. Uh, it's both overwhelming and comforting at the same time. Um, it really creates its own universe in which you can really lose yourself, I think. And I'm not just talking about while you're playing the game. Uh, in fact, I'm talking mostly about when you're not playing the game. Uh, and this happens in a way that no other game uh, can do. So it absolutely belongs on this list, and Advanced Squad Leader is my number four. So now, no one should be surprised about the next game on the list. Uh, it's sort of a consensus best game on everyone's lists. And I'm sure not going to disagree, uh, not because I'm afraid to disagree with everyone, but in this case, everyone happens to be right. Uh, it's a game that takes a fascinating historical period uh, that seems impossible to game, uh, and not only does it, but makes it one of the best war games ever made, uh, one that's number one on so many lists. Uh, that's quite an achievement for Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta with their game Twilight Struggle. Uh, you know, back in college, I remember playing a game on the first Macintoshes. It was called Balance of Power by Chris Crawford. And I immediately thought, boy, I wish someone would make a board game out of Balance of Power uh, because that may well, maybe be more playable, uh, right? And I absolutely had no idea how you'd do that. I was just imagining a game where all that weird stuff you had to keep track of was out in the open and easier to manage. Um, I guess what I was looking for was a better interface. <laughs> so I said to myself, just make a board game out of it, huh? That's, that's how interfaces get better. But of course, I didn't have a clue how that would work. Uh, I imagined this really complex, bloated thing with hexes. Uh, you know how everything in 1985 had to have hexes, and so on and so forth. Of course, I'm not a designer, and I would never have been able to do what Jason and Ananda did, uh, which was to streamline the heck out of, out of everything, make the history flow out of cards, um, put in a space race, and be hailed as geniuses, um, which they are, of course, don't get me wrong. Uh, but they also had a little help from a guy named Mark Herman, who, after Balance of Power came out, happened to invent something called card-driven gaming. 
Uh, anyway, it's such an impressive design, and it takes me about two femtoseconds to say yes to any time uh, someone asks me if I want to play. Uh, I'm just sorry I didn't spring for a collector's edition, but uh, well. So Twilight Struggle is my number three. So number two. My number two all-time game is relatively old, um, although I feel that in my mind the games that are old are the ones that uh, came out before I started playing war games. So um, Panzerblitz is old, but Storm Over Arnhem isn't. Yeah, it's just all a matter of perception. Anyway, I played the first game in the series in 1982, and it was uh, called Storm Over Arnhem. Um, I really liked the interactivity of the series, the uncertainty, and the way it captured the historical situation. Um, but Storm Over Arnhem is not the game because 10 years later, Don Greenwood built on Courtney Allen's design and created Breakout Normandy, um, which I think is not just the very best of what we now know as the Area Impulse System, but one of the very best war games of all time. Uh, the Area Impulse System was somewhat handicapped in its early iterations by, well, let's just call them static historical situations. Uh, and they felt kind of one-sided, with one side attacking all the time while the other side just defended and occasionally hit back. Uh, Breakout Normandy's big achievement is finding a situation where both players can attack and counterattack, and then, and this is the thing, pacing it so perfectly that every single move you make feels like the most important decision you've made in the game up to that point. Um, the area impulse system always had the potential to be a tense back-and-forth sword fight where every single move matters, and while the previous three games in the series didn't quite reach that potential, uh, Turning Point Stalingrad almost did, but for various reasons they didn't, Breakout Normandy made up for all of it. Uh, this is a true Avalon Hill classic in the best sense of the word. So Breakout Normandy is my number two. So that leaves us with my number one war game of all time. Uh, and this is going to be a big surprise to some people, or at least those who haven't heard me talk about it before. Uh, but I have it here for a very specific reason, and that has to do with how I experience and enjoy war games. Uh, it's a game from a small publisher, uh, and it's about a battle many people only know about peripherally, if at all. And it's probably the one I'm going to get the most argument about, but I don't care because I'm very comfortable with this choice. It's the game uh, which, in my mind, best captures the narrative of the event it depicts. And I'm talking about Dien Bien Phu, The Final Gamble, uh, designed by Kim Conger and published by Legion of War Games. Um, I've read a lot about Dien Bien Phu, and I, I mean a lot, uh, in the course of my studying for my uh, you know, research for my video series. And I still find Bernard Fall's classic, Hell in a Very Small Place, to be the best writing about the battle that I have ever come across. I mean, it's absolutely gripping. It's beautifully written, and it has a style that I don't know really how to describe it. The sort of French ironic lyricism that's tempered by... I don't know, American, I know, pragmatism, objectivism, uh, that, that really it paints the events clearly, but it infuses them with emotions that don't overwhelm the narrative. And that's a pretty unusual thing to be able to uh, say about a war game. But I think Dien Bien Phu, uh, The Final Gamble, does merit this kind of discussion. Um, it's just so interesting to me how Kim Kanger does it, uh, because every part of the game works in conjunction with every other part of the game. And I don't just mean the mechanics. Um, so, you know, complex mechanics can absolutely capture historical narrative if you do them right. And that's the key. They can easily overwhelm the player with details. They can uh, weight the game's focus to one aspect of the battle instead of another. Um, and the key is not just keeping them manageable, but keeping them in balance with each other so that they really work synergistically. Uh, I hate that word, but it's appropriate, where the way one mechanic works actually enhances another. And in the end, the mechanics uh, in the final gamble are not that complex, but they work in exactly this way. Uh, it's the way Conger uses art design, layout, and presentation choices that back up the mechanics. I feel like when I, when I play this game, I'm experiencing a tactile retelling of Bernard Fall's book, with the key difference that you never know what the ending will be 
or how it's going to get there. So um, just to keep this from sounding like a bunch of vague, empty hand-waving, let me give you a, a concrete example. Um, <clears throat> the battle was basically fought between the Viet Minh trying to take a series of distinct separate strong points from the French, and the French trying to hold these with a steadily dwindling number of troops while experiencing severe civil supply problems, including medicine, uh, armor, uh, ammo, water, basically everything. And the strong points were defended by units that became iconic in a sense, and this resulted in an almost personal confrontation between these units and the Viet Minh from a narrative standpoint. And the map portrays these strong points, I think, better than any other map in any other game about Yin Bien Phu, and the counters do the same for the units. And then the combat system pits these units uh, against one another with defensive fire and offensive fire in a way that um, it makes it personal. And you really get the sense that um, you know full strength units are much more valuable than reduced strength units, especially for the French. And then the visual reinforcement of this, the sight of an uh, you know unreduced French unit later in the game, um, that's almost a visceral morale boost for the for the French player. And the way in which you try to keep units from being ground down to the point that they're offensively useless ties together with all the game's very supply systems. Um, which are all based, by the way, on an airdrop mechanic that simply ex uh, just, it's inspired. I can't believe no one else thought of this. Um, but that's a great design for you, and this is an example of uh, a great game because of it. Um, and the only problem with games that hew you know, closely to historical situation is that this can limit the replay value. But I played the game several times now, and I found it different each time, especially uh, with the way it treats the Condor Relief Force and Strong Point Isabel. I just adore this game. Uh, so there's my number one war game, uh, Dien Bien Phu, uh, The Final Gamble. And that's the list. Wargamers being the way they are, I doubt there is a single person out there who completely agrees with me. But that's the fun of lists. And that's the fun of a podcast as well. Join me next time for more war game news, people, and views. Stay out of the electronic jamming. This has been Wild Weasel, 